You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Imagine what would happen to the quality and availability of healthcare in this country if the majority of our medical school graduates moved from the country each year. The social and economic costs of talented, medically trained individuals routinely emigrating to Western countries is a real concern for many developing countries and a concern of my guest today. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Washington, D.C. is my guest, Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen. Dr. Mullen is the Murdoch Head Professor of Medicine and Health Policy at the George Washington University School of Public Health and Professor of Pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Mullen. Thank you, Dr. Margolin. Glad to be with you. Dr. Mullen, let's talk about brain drain and brain gain. Well, brain drain is a term that's been applied for decades, really, to the movement of largely skilled personnel from less developed countries to more developed countries. Particularly in medicine, it's been a phenomenon at least since the middle of the 20th century, and it represents, of course, brains, that is, brainy people who have been well-educated, in the case of medicine for sure, uh, moving from traditionally poor countries, or poor countries traditionally, India and the Philippines have been two major donors, Pakistan over the years, but increasingly countries in Africa and the Caribbean, uh, as well as many other parts of the world. And, of course, coming to the United States, most stay and most do very well and contribute to health care here. But it does represent a drain of brains from the countries which they were born and educated. And who benefits from this migration of healthcare professionals? Well, I think there are two principal uh, beneficiaries. One is the individual who seeks both clinical or professional and economic betterment, both of which are achieved for the most part by moving to the United States or the UK or Canada or other developed countries. The second beneficiary, of course, is the recipient country, the United States. A full one quarter of our physicians were educated elsewhere, and uh, that's a huge gain in terms of personnel uh, skills and uh, healthcare contribution. Dr. Mullen, what does happen when the majority of medical school graduates, like in Pakistan, leave the country every year? What are the social and economic costs? Well, that's a, an important question, one that is seen from various perspectives by various people. Many people in lesser developed countries see this as a way out for them, personally or uh, as a family. The argument goes it is a free world, uh, it is a world of uh, a global economy, and people as well as goods uh, ought to move across borders without uh, any major impediment. Uh, and that, of course, is good for the individual and makes sense in terms of the individual. The problem is that for a poor country who is spending precious resources on training a very few people to become physicians, presumably to meet the health needs of that population or attempt to meet the health needs of that population, to have substantial numbers of those people leave creates a hardship uh, that in some countries borders on uh, destructive in terms of the ability to deliver health in those countries. Now, large countries that have done this for a long time, such as, say, India or Pakistan, have kind of uh, adjusted to it. And I spent a good deal of time in India studying this very situation. And you get people in India who say, well, this really isn't a problem. We have too many people, too many physicians in India anyway. Well, one needs to step back and look at the figures to assess that comment. India has 60 physicians per 100,000 people. 
The United States, we have 280 physicians per 100,000 people. So our density is more than four times what it is in India. But in India, most physicians, as physicians in many countries, are in urban areas, and they mostly work in the cash economy, that is, with people who are better off. There are about a billion Indians, and about a quarter of them, 250 million, live in areas that are urban and in the cash economy. About 750 million, three-quarters of a billion, live in rural areas where a physician is rarely seen, an allopathic physician is rarely seen. So if you're an urbanite, it may appear to you, a well-to-do urbanite, that everything's fine. But if you step back and look at the health of the people of India and what benefit they're getting from the graduates of their medical schools, they're losing appreciable numbers to the West, and that is not helping with the improved public health and health status of all Indians, uh, a concern both nationally and internationally. Right. So they really can't afford this. Which countries are losing the largest percentage of their medical school graduates? Well, the largest percentage, ironically, comes from some very poor countries. I did a study several years ago looking at uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia, four well-developed Anglophone countries, and the foreign medical graduates in those countries, where did they come from? And the largest numbers, of course, come from India, Pakistan, the Indian subcontinent, the Philippines, and in the United States, interestingly enough, the largest number, one of the largest numbers comes from Canada. One other sidebar on that, one of the largest numbers of U.S. foreign graduates are U.S. citizens who went abroad for medical education and returned to the United States, a point worth discussing further about our inadequate or insufficient numbers of medical school opportunities. We will do that. But the, uh, there are countries in Africa uh, that have lost, uh, by my study, upwards of 50% of their physicians to the developed world. Zimbabwe is one. Sierra Leone is another, Liberia is a third, but of course these are countries that have been racked by war and instability. But even stable countries like Ghana, in my study, have lost 30% of their physicians to the north. Uh, by the north, I mean the developed world. And my study undercounts because I'm only looking at physicians who have succeeded in getting licensed, others in those four countries, others who went to the Gulf or went to Europe, uh, continental Europe, or are in still in uh, the training program or have not succeeded in getting licensed and are doing business or driving taxis or whatever, aren't even counted. So way more than 30% actually have been lost, even though 30% show up in the workforces of the developed world. That's a very, very crippling blow to a developing country that's trying to get its medical feet uh, underneath it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen of George Washington University School of Public Health and School of Medicine. Dr. Mullen spent 20 years as a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service. Dr. Mullen, many of these countries that we're talking about have horrific numbers of individuals with AIDS. What happens to the fight against HIV-AIDS in the nation? losing physicians to places that offer better opportunities? Well, the loss of physicians is really a marker for the loss of health workers because countries that are losing a large number of physicians tend also to lose large numbers of nurses, large numbers of pharmacists, and anyone who has any kind of medical training at all. And as your question suggests, it is a hugely problematic issue to have lost those people and be in the eye of an epidemic, in this case the HIV epidemic. Now, the problems, ironically, have been brought to light by the epidemic, and uh, help has come. The world in the last decade has been 
quite concerned with HIV, particularly in Africa, but elsewhere as well. And you've seen the development of global institutions such as the Global Fund, UNAIDS, the attention of the World Health Organization, the arrival on the scene of private institutions like the Gates Foundation that is putting a great deal of funding into uh, HIV, and then bilateral programs from national governments such as our own through PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, that is in the process of spending uh, $15 billion on HIV, largely in Africa, and the President's call for more in the future. So these are resources that are needed. It is the cavalry in a sense, but the problem is the initial conception was that you got antiretroviral drugs to the country and then national programs would start for distribution. Well, treating HIV is not like, say, treating smallpox. It required one shot, one time per person globally, a huge feat, one carried out successfully in the 1970s. HIV treatment requires a daily treatment, a weekly delivery of medications for the rest of a patient's life. It's hugely labor-intensive. And the arrival of drugs on the loading dock in a hospital in a country only is the beginning of the treatment saga that needs to take place. And what the world has discovered is, put a little hyperbolically, there's no one there to deliver the medication. So the workforce situation in high-impact countries is very often very tenuous. Now there are huge efforts to try to stabilize that, but when you have brain drain taking place and doctors and nurses leaving these same countries, you're basically undercutting your own efforts to beat the epidemic by recruiting doctors away. Right. Medical schools in those poorer nations often model their programs after Western systems instead of aligning with their local culture and training in local patterns of disease and levels of technology. How does this misalignment impact the stability of the workforce? And that's a good and difficult question. In many parts of the world, medical education has modeled itself on Western medical education, developed medical education. Uh, and that's understandable. Everybody wants the best technology. Everybody wants to learn cutting-edge uh, diagnostic and treatment techniques. But very often the disease burden in a poor developing country is dramatically different than that of, say, the United States or the United Kingdom. So that uh, the issues at hand in terms of the pattern of pathology is quite different. And many medical schools are training not only in terms of their course content, but in terms of the signals that they send using Western exams, uh, training to Western standards, often by professors who have worked abroad and value that in a way that promotes or certainly um, greases the path of departure for students. Now, this is easy for me to sit in Washington and say, and there are many human factors involved in this, but one as a medical educator, as I am, one has to be concerned about the messages being sent to students um, and uh, the culture of medical education in a development setting. What we're actually seeing is greater emphasis on task shifting with HIV so that if you have a very limited physician resource base, more tasks that traditionally have been done by physicians uh, need to be done by nurses and more tasks done by mid-level, like uh, in many countries there are uh, health officers or clinical officers trained like physician assistants. And they, in turn, need to pass tasks to community health workers, who, in turn, need to pass tasks to educated patients. So there's a paradigm shift going on in many countries, part of it just on the hoof as people try to figure out how to deal with the epidemic. But now, in a more strategized way, uh, the WHO is looking into developing guidelines for task shifting. So there's efforts going on to uh, indigenize, as it were, 
treatments, even when uh, physicians are in short supply or when they're leaving quickly because their interest and standards are more developed and more westernized than the disease burden in their countries. Ideas for decreasing the impact of the brain drain will be the topic of the next Clinician's Roundtable featuring Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen, the Murdoch Head Professor of Medicine and Health Policy at the George Washington University School of Public Health and a Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at George Washington University of Medicine. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Mullen. Thank you, Dr. Margolin. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>